Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. In the spring of 2022, the Leadership Under Fire team launched an optimizing human performance program with the Cherry Hill, New Jersey Fire Department. The program strives to equip fire officers, firefighters, and EMS providers with a comprehensive understanding of human performance, particularly under stress in high-risk settings. The immersive LUF Human Performance course is being delivered to the Cherry Hill Fire Department in three iterations. Each iteration consists of 40 hours of immersive curriculum that rigorously explores physiological performance under operational stress, cognitive function and decision-making in high-risk settings, mental skills and conditioning, as well as responsible stress inoculations. The final block is devoted to a provocative examination of what science, history, and experience informs us about risk and resilience. Course advisors and contributors include several fire service leaders, as well as human performance thought leaders in the military, sport, and academia. The Cherry Hill, New Jersey Fire Department is the third fire department in the United States to advance performance in a programmatic fashion. They join the FDNY and the Milwaukee Fire Department in this endeavor. Lieutenants Zach Houck and Timmy Moore serve as the human performance program managers for the Cherry Hill Fire Department. The LUF team is proud of our relationship with the Cherry Hill Fire Department and Philadelphia Fire Department as we continue to work together to humanize the narrative around performance at fires and emergencies. Now on with the episode. Hello, this is Jim McNamara. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. Our guests today are Zach Houck and Timmy Moore. Zach Houck is a lieutenant with the Cherry Hill Fire Department, where he is assigned to Squad 13 and Hazmat 13. Zach started his career with the Cherry Hill Fire Department in 2006, serving primarily in engine companies around Cherry Hill, before finishing his career as a firefighter in Squad 13. Zach was promoted to lieutenant in 2019 and served as the lead instructor in the department's recruit academy and overseas grant writing. Zach earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from St. Joseph's University in Pennsylvania, where he was a walk-on NCAA Division I track and field athlete. Zach returned to school at the University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute for Government to earn a master's degree in public administration. Zach also serves as the mayor of his hometown, Haddon Heights, New Jersey, and is halfway through his first four-year term. He is an assistant coach for the Haddon Heights High School cross-country team and a proud husband and father of two. Timmy Moore is a 13-year member of the Cherry Hill Fire Department, currently assigned as a lieutenant to Rescue Company 13. He also represents the Cherry Hill Fire Department as a rescue specialist with the FEMA Urban Search and Rescue New Jersey Task Force Number 1. As a firefighter, Timmy worked in both engine and truck companies before being assigned as a rescue firefighter. 
He was promoted to lieutenant in 2020 and serves as a drill instructor with the Cherry Hill Fire Department Recruit Academy, where he takes the lead in cultural development for recruit firefighters and tactical instructor. Timmy worked as a paramedic in southeastern Pennsylvania and served as a volunteer firefighter in southeastern Pennsylvania prior to joining the Cherry Hill Fire Department. Timmy is a husband, an active father of three, who also works to maintain and improve his family's 200-year-old historic home. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Nice to be here. Gents, let's start right on the top. Can you tell us a little about yourselves, your backgrounds, and what led you to the fire service? Zach? Certainly. So um, I guess I grew up, I was a fifth-generation volunteer firefighter in, in the town. I, I grew up in Barrington, um, you know, as far back as my, my grandfathers were chiefs, my great-grandfather. So it was kind of just, as everybody says, it's in your blood, you know, and I just naturally don't know anything uh, outside of firefighting. And then I think it was 97, 98, my father became a career fire marshal in the county, um, and my brother was hired by the Cherry Hill Fire Department maybe a year or two later. And at that point, I was like, okay, you can make this a career. This is this is pretty cool. So um, had all these aspirations and went to school, went to, you know, I went away to, to get my bachelor's degree, uh, graduating high school, and then I went to St. Joe's University, pursued the test, you know, with the Cherry Hill Fire Department. And um, from there, I got a call going into my junior year at college in the summer asking if I was uh, still interested in uh, the job, if I still wanted to be a firefighter. And I, I think at that point, you know, I had been on the list for two years. I kind of assumed it was going to expire and it was fine. I'm like, I've I'm, I'm got something else going on at St. Joe's and I'll just take the test again. Um, so I get this call kind of unexpectedly and I'm like, yes, this is kind of like my dream. Um, and that's what I say on the phone. But ultimately I did, I think I paused and reflected for a good uh, a couple of weeks and, and consulted with a lot of my mentors at the time and said like, hey, is this, is this what I want to do? And my family was a little torn on it you know, especially my mom and I come from a big family and they were like, you know, you should finish college. You should finish college. And uh, I credit my grandfather who was kind of like, I was Sunday night dinner, like slams his fist on the table. was like silences everybody. And he's like, Hey, he's like, good for you. Like take the job and get it done and you'll be, <laughs> and you'll be fine. And, uh, and that was it. And so I, I, you know, took the job, got hired in August, 2006, went through the recruit Academy and, um, yeah, and I finished my degree at St. Joe's. Took me a couple extra years, but finished my bachelor's degree out there. So that's that's kind of how I ended up at Cherry Hill Fire Department, and it's been a, a really great ride. How competitive is that process? How many people take the test, and how many people do they hire off a given list? So when I took the test, I think the numbers were in, you know, in 06, we had just run, we had a huge class hired in 1998. 20 some guys, Tim might be able to correct me on the numbers. And then again in 2001, 2002, another large class when we opened a company. So it was like 15 guys, 16 guys hired. And then after that, it was like two guys, four guys. So I took a test. I think there were two guys hired off the list before me and then six in our class. And so we competed amongst, you know, I think there was seven, 800 people that, it was, that went out for the written test. And it's a written test wow. followed by a physical agility and then an interview. Um, wow. Yeah. So quite competitive. The numbers have been, I would say, on a downturn as far as the people who are coming out to take the test over the last five years or so. But into the 2012-2015 area, it was usually about a seven or 800 person turnout per test. And I'd say we were averaging probably hiring six to 10 off of each list. Right. 
which has changed a little bit. I mean, the last list we exhausted it because we, we went through. So we just we're at this transitional period in the department. Yep. Why would there be a, a decrease in applicants? I think there's a lot of factors that play into it. I don't necessarily know geographically the Cherry Hills situated where, you know, we're necessarily growing people who aspire to be firefighters in the backyard. Um, you know, we're an all-career department. We don't necessarily feed from the community in any right. Um, and then on top of that, I think just, you know, nationally, um, we just have been hearing from neighboring departments, uh, you know, people in adjoining areas that their numbers are decreasing as well. I don't, I, I can't really explain it one way or the other, but um, I know that our numbers have gone down significantly, I'd say probably by 50%. Yeah, um, sure. It's interesting, even for us, like historically, like, well, we still get numbers, but it's difficult to get them through all the processes, the investigations, the backgrounds, all of that. That's an interesting, interesting trend. I mean, these are still desirable jobs. I would, I would imagine that your job is, is a really desirable one. You live and work in a great community, and I have to think you're, you're pretty well resourced. We are, yeah. And I think, you know, the, the other trend, I mean, when, when I took the job in 06, or the te- and I think I took the test in 04, there wasn't a lot of places around us that were hiring, right? So you had the Philly Fire Department, I think, was still hiring, but they were in like a slow, like a lull. Um, Camden City, you know, was not hiring, hadn't hired in quite a little bit. And really, anybody who wanted a firefighter job was going south. They were going down to PG County, Baltimore County. Um, yep. So I think that's, you know, you had this huge influx of people taking this test because we were the only, we were the only growing career outlet, you know, uh, outfit out there. And so that drove a lot of people to us. Now, and Tim's in the the testing process. I think he he's part of that. And he can speak to the fact that, like, how many times do we have no-shows? Like, guys start the process and then don't show for the physical or the interview. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a lack of uh, completion. Uh, probably the last two tests I've been involved in, that's a major issue is where people will take one or two components of the test and then fail to show for the last time, and uh, then they're off the list. Interesting. Interesting. I guess the economy plays a role in this. When things are good, people move to other jobs. When when the economy starts to go south, people like the, uh, the tried and true and uh, steady paycheck. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and to me, yeah, so um, similar to Zach, it was a, a family affair. Um, I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia, and uh, back to my grandfather's generation, um, they were all involved. My grandfather, my uncle, my father were all involved in the local volunteer fire department, and, you know, sort of cliche, but from the youngest I can remember, it was, I want to be a fireman. So it's, uh, it was at 16, you could join uh, as a junior firefighter, and uh, I was hooked pretty much from night number one, and I knew it was what I wanted to do for a living. Uh, my, my mother had designs on me going to college. I had designs on graduating high school and just starting to take tests and waiting for you know fire department to realize what they were missing. But uh, <laughs> she, she insisted I go to college, so uh, you know I sort of ended up... Um, fighting back a little bit and to her credit she said you know if you want to if you want to help the public you can still go to college and do that and uh she encouraged me to pursue being a paramedic so i ended up in uh, a paramedic program at drexel university of all places buddy of mine called and said hey if you're in the city i'm driving across the bridge to take this test in new jersey to be a fireman and i'd never heard of cherry hill i didn't know anything about it um certainly didn't know anything about the fire department but i jumped in and uh you know here i am yeah, interesting how people come to this job. I'll be the contrarian here. I never in my life had any intention of being a fireman, um, but but it's amazing 
you know, the, the twists and turns in one's life, and then you you find the thing that you really uh, you really were meant to do. Yeah, fantastic. No, yeah, we have guys. It's funny. Like there was a guy in Tim's class. He was a, what, a social worker before yeah. he got on the job. We had yep. a guy who was a culinary chef. You know, and uh-huh. they just you know one day they're like, I want to change jobs and, and it's awesome i mean and there's some of the there some stud firemen we have out there so excellent excellent so switching gears now zach can you talk about your upenn experience sure so i want to say it was around 2009 2010 graduated st joe's like i said it took me a little bit longer and i took a year or two off i got engaged and kicking around wanting to go back i'm like a lifelong learner that's my style and the department has uh, one thing that they've always done since the day I got on, and even prior to that, is they encouraged people to get an education. So they had this uh, incentive program where they would cover your college costs. And wow, yeah, it, and it's incredible. And I, I mean, the vision that are the the leaders that um, you know came before us to put that on the, on the into the contract and 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 encourage it is awesome, and just foster that environment. But um, yeah, so. I started looking and I and I was kind of looking for a program. I'm like, all right. And I had this great advice from uh, he's now an a an assistant chief with us. He had told me he's like he had gone to St. Joe's for his undergrad and got his master's there, like right following. And he got an emergency management. He's like, do one if you do one thing, do not get a degree, a master's degree in emergency management. He's like, this job will teach you <laughs> everything you need to know. You do not need a college education in right. firefighting. So he's like, go find something else. And really, that was huge because that just it drove me to say, okay, let me look outside the firefighter. Like, how can I, I find something? And I looked around. I was looking at MBAs and so forth. And then I found this program. It was an MPA or Master's in, in Public Administration and Government. And it's at UPenn. UPenn, the name that that carries. So I was like, all right, let me check this out. So I, I do all my research and I'm like, this is it. I look at the class load and I'm like, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. So I go and I uh, come off work. I'm only like three, four years on the job. And I go to a fire administration building because I need a letter of recommendation from the chief of the department. So I show up there, I emailed him and he's like, sure, just stop by, you know, I'm in the office by 8 a.m. So I, I, I'm sitting there in the kitchen, the little luncheonette area of headquarters and the assistant chief walks in, this assistant chief and he says, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, I need to get a letter of recommendation from the chief. Oh yeah, what are you, what are, where are you going? And I said, I'm looking to go at this little school inside UPenn, it's called Fells. He goes, you know, uh, Bob's a graduate of Fells. And I said, I did not know. And I'm like, oh my God. So he was the he was with the first firefighter, you know, to, to go through the program. And so I I go in expecting this to be a five minute like, Chief, can I have a letter of recommendation? Thanks. Awesome. And I skedaddle. And instead he sits me down. I think we talked for about an hour and a half about why this program is right and how he can count on probably one hand the number of people he has in the department he wished could go there. And he's like three or four of them. He's like, I don't even think have the the undergrad degree yet. So off I went and he was huge. I mean, he, he paved the way. There were some hurdles along the way internally and he uh, pushed those out of the way and got me to Penn. And, you know, it was an incredible experience. The, I think the greatest thing about the Fells uh, program at Penn was that it was a practitioner-based program. So it is, you know, you're not writing these long thesis papers that are going to sit in a journal on a bookshelf in a library that no one is going to reference except when they also have to write a paper. This was, um, you were learning from real practitioners who worked on city in city government, worked on budgets. One of my favorite classes, the lobbying class, was about like just straight up tending your garden, right? Like working with people and to accomplish whatever your objectives are. And, um, you know, we had this, 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 this is a great story. It's like, 
I had an assignment. Our midterm assignment was we had to assume we were, um, this is 2012 when I started the program at Penn, and I'm told we have to assume that we are a policy analyst for a, the upcoming mayor election for a candidate. And we need to just vet out this educational idea. And education was a big thing in the city of Philly back then and um, still is. So we vet it out. We say, all right, who are the players? You know, what are the funding options? The whole nine. And then when it went time for the final, so when, well, correction, let me backtrack. When you presented your midterm, one of the two professors played the mayoral candidate. And so then for the final, you, you thought you were going to go against the other professor playing the mayoral candidate again. But this time when I showed up to do, deliver and you had to pick a position, right, and deliver this, like, you had to be a lobbyist, right? You had to pick a position on the issue and address it with this mayoral candidate. When I showed up and knocked on the door at Fells to, like, to go into this, uh, the Fells school, standing there in the rain waiting to get let in as well is, at the time, was Senator Anthony Williams, who was then ran against Jim Kenney as, you know, for the mayoral election of uh, 2014 in Philly. So, I mean, like, you were legit a think tank for real-world issues and ideas. And I think that was – it was just – incredibly awesome to be to experience that yeah that's fantastic wow and what a benefit they get you're in a department that values education like that and is willing to to spend the money to make a better product it's fantastic piggybacking off of that when and why did you decide to run for mayor <laughs> so 2019 i left fells you know like obviously it's a degree you're, you're surrounding yourself with and politicians and government employees and so forth. And I don't know, maybe I always had a little bit of aspiration. You know, my grandfather, who you've already heard, was a huge role model in my life, uh, was mayor of my small town from 88 to 96, so in the neighboring town of Barrington. And um, I always thought it was the coolest thing growing up. And then, you know, 2019 comes, I get promoted to lieutenant. Uh, it was like a long time coming, which was great. I learned a lot in those years leading up. And I'm, but I'm on cloud nine. I'm a lieutenant. Uh, I was assigned to an engine company, and I'm just in. The sky is the limit in my mind, and I'm not even thinking about running for mayor in my small town that I just moved into a few years prior. And I get this call, and we had horrible cell reception, and and it's a family friend, and I think she's butt dialing me because I'm my name's Zach, so it's I'm always like the last person in a rolodex, so I always get butt dialed, and it's like, <laughs> all right. And I answered, and I said, I end up calling her back on the landline. I said, hey, hey, um, hey, Pat, what's up? And she's like, hey, are you butt dialing? And she's like, no, I'm actually trying to get a hold of you. I got a wild question for you, a crazy question. I said, okay, shoot, I'm at work. I do crazy all day. Let's do this. And she's like, what do you think about being mayor of Haddon Heights? I said, that's crazy. Um, and uh, so I, and she knows my family really well. She's a longtime friend. She was an assembly woman in, this, in uh, New Jersey. And I said, hey, Pat, I really got to talk to the boss. And she knows Laura. And she's like, that's a very wise decision. Talk to your wife. So yep. I, I hang up the phone with her and I immediately call my wife. It's a Friday right before 4th of July. This is June. And there's a sense of urgency here because the, the gentleman who was running um, and had won the primary has, has basically said, hey, I can't run for mayor. I got you know, things going on outside of my control and I need to kind of step away. So I called my wife and I said, Laura, like, I just got a call from Pat Jones and she, she wants to know, do I want to run for mayor of Patton Heights? She's like, Laura's like, let's do it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you're supposed to be the point of reason here and talk me out of this. <laughs> and she says, listen, we've always talked about this. You know, like we want to take on more of a, a, a role in the town and the community and give back. Let's do it. So I immediately hang up the phone with her and I call uh, the chief of the department at the time who uh, I had actually gone to Fells with, um, Chief Callan. And to, to kind of bounce it off him. And um, I don't think he answered at the time. So I called, uh, you've met uh, Battalion Chief Brett DeLuca. 
Um, he was my battalion at the time, and I called him and I said, Brad, I need you to, I don't know where you're eating dinner, but you got to come over to, to Fours. You got to have coffee with me tonight. We got to talk about this. And um, and he was a great sounding board. Brett's been a mentor of mine for a very long time. And he, you know, he's like, hey, man, follow your heart. And I was like, I think I can do a lot of good. And this is, and he's like, and if you need to bail, you bail. And so I, I took that advice, and um, it was a pretty close race. I think I won by 160 votes. And it, it was funny. I, I attended a Luff training event in Fort Washington, like, three days, four days after, and Timmy Clark's talking about heart rates and emotional arousal, and I'm texting Bre- <laughs> and I'm texting Bresler pictures of my Fitbit, right? And I'm like, here's a normal day at work, here's a day where we're going to like an arson fire, and I'm like, and then here's me on election day, at 820, my heart rate is at a buck 60, as, they're, as uh, we're reading off the counts and tallying them ourselves, like hand tallying them to see if we've won, and I mean, it's insane. So it was, it was huge, an incredible team, and yeah, and then you know, and then 2020. How do you balance being a mayor and a fire officer while also raising kids? <laughs> so uh, Tim and I have these conversations all the time, you know, and it's I think um, uh, truth be told, I have to say like it is not a one man show. I, I have an incredible support team. And that is, it starts with my wife. She is superhuman, hands down. She works a full-time job. She just got promoted, you know, at work, has an insane commute. But she single-handedly, I think, raises our girls um, when I'm at work. And then you add in the complexities of when I'm off, you know, I'm running to meetings and, and so forth. Uh, I always joke, she's the only, there's only one true angry constituent in town, and that's my wife in, in Haddon Heights. Um, <laughs> But she was like, how, how hard is this job going to be? I'm like, oh, it's like two meetings a month. Yeah, uh, forget it. So, But there's a lot of parallels, I think, across like those disciplines, right? Being mayor, um, when I took on that role, I was completely a little bit in the dark. And yet my time as a firefighter in the Cheryl Fire Department, my interaction with people like Tim and you know my mentors shaped how I was as a leader. And, you know, it's a, it's a weak mayor, strong council concept, so I don't have a vote. I, I just have to kind of steer the ship a little bit and then vice versa, right? Like they're being mayor has forced me to check my ego and be patient, which at times is not always clear cut and easy in the, in the fire service. And so, you know, it's, it, I've learned a lot. And then being a father, I mean, my girls, they think it's the coolest thing in the world. They think I run New Jersey. I'm like, nope, it's just a little town called Haddon Heights. But there's a lot of, I, I take lessons across the board, you know, from raising little girls to working in a squad company in Cherry Hill to being mayor. And I cannot do it as myself. I, I have built an incredible team. It's the only way it works, which was definitely difficult in the year 2020 with the pandemic and everything. But as you know, over the last two and a half years, I have an incredible team in Haddon Heights um, with my fellow council members, and they are just, they, they crush it. And uh, really, now I do just smile and wave, I think. Uh, they really do a lot of the work behind the scenes. And then the same goes for the squad company. When I'm off, those guys... Uh, Rob, Patty, and, and Ryan, these guys crush it every day of the week and I'm, with full confidence. I can actually like turn off when I'm not at the firehouse. And and, and the same goes for my wife. I mean, she just, she is the rock, the foundation at home. So it's Excellent. building good teams, Excellent. building good teams. Yeah. Always. Let's switch over to Tim. Tim, you're a mechanically inclined, hands-on guy and actively involved with your department's technical rescue capability set, as well as the National Urban Search and Rescue Program. What technical rescue disciplines do you enjoy the most, and which do you think are the most challenging, technically and from a human factors perspective? 
Yeah, so uh, difficult question in the sense that uh, I think I have an admiration and a love for at least a piece of every discipline that I'm engaged in. But I would say if I had to narrow it down to one, uh, it would be rope rescue, being as number one, that was the first technical rescue discipline I was introduced to, you know, years ago as, as a volunteer firefighter. And two, it's truly the foundational discipline for every other venue of technical rescue, in my opinion. You know, you're, you're hard pressed to find another venue of technical rescue that doesn't involve um, some rope practice or rope principle um, that's there. And I would say for that reason, I can find it in any other discipline. So it would definitely be, you know, the one that I find most enjoyable. And I think the other reason, too, is that it really does speak to, like, the core, pure rescue of, you know, uh, I arrive, I find a problem, I construct this uh, unique system to solve the problem, and with positive outcome, I employ the system. And to me, that's, that's like what rescue is all about. So in that, that sense of building something unique to a problem, solving the problem uh, in a positive outcome, that's, that's really why rope is, is probably the most enjoyable for me. Challenging-wise, I might have had a different opinion of this, uh, transitioning from firefighter <laughs> to supervisor. I think as a firefighter, uh, if you ask me, I would say, I hate trench rescue. It's just a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> you know, panels are heavy. It's always muddy. Yep. Uh, the walls are never straight. It's just... Uh, it's a mess. Um, but as a supervisor, I find them all challenging, but I would say structural collapse um, operations is definitely uh, one where the environment itself is just so ultra hazardous. And because that's sort of the opposite end where rope rescue is foundational and structural collapse can encompass every other discipline, confined space, trench, rope, um, you name it. As a supervisor, that's a lot to take in. Um, it's a lot to plan for on a strategic and even a tactical level. And with all disciplines of rescue, but particularly as they get more complicated and as disciplines get uh, get blended, articulating a strategy or a plan or an objective to your operators and then seeing them take that and make it their own and build their own unique system and, and solve the problem, it takes a little bit of adjusting to when those two cars don't align perfectly and they're not building exactly what you saw in your head to sort of balance that out and appreciate that. I think, you know, years ago, someone said to me, rescue is about special skills, special people, special tools, and special training. And when you get to see that come to life, uh, yeah, the human factors play a role. But in addition to that, on a technical level, it's ultra satisfying, but nerve wracking as a supervisor. <laughs> Sure, so many moving parts and compounded with the emotion, especially at a at a collapse where you think you have life in that structure. That's got to be really, really challenging for an officer. Yes, indeed. Okay, we'll switch now. Again, it's kind of a macro question. How do you guys find the time to manage all of this work and all these activities you engage in and still keep a family? How do you do this? Um you know, I, I think to, to sort of echo off of what Zach had mentioned about his team, you know, namely starting with the team captain, his wife, Laura, is, <laughs> you know, who, who I've known for my entirety of my employment in Cherry Hill. Zach was on my proby company uh, as the next junior man, um, and, and Laura was certainly around. But I think it, it does start at home. You know, if, if that foundation is not solid, then, you know, nothing else is. I, I'm blessed with 
a wife and, you know, my, my oldest daughter is 10 now. Uh, and even my son who's, who's turning six, they have a, a well-rounded concept of when, you know, I feel satisfied and I feel successful and I'm, I'm happy about what's going on in other venues of my life. And, you know, they sort of echo that back onto you. Um, and to my wife's credit, she takes a lot of personal sacrifice to allow for me to be successful in what I do. And I would like to think that as both of us have gotten more mature and, and you know, our relationship has, has come a long way, you know, we, we sort of recognize that there's a time to be honest. There's a time to communicate. Um, there's a time to argue. You know, at the end of the day, the lasting impression you want to leave is that we both have the other's best interest and our family's best interest in mind. But on top of that, I don't know. It just sort of happens. I feel like I can't really turn work off. I've been off for a couple of weeks. I have a week and a half old baby at home. Um, and, <laughs> you know, uh, to her credit, here I am in sitting in New York uh, doing a podcast. But I think with all that considered, I just I love I love this job. I love it. I can't turn it off. It's it would be disingenuous to the people around me. It would be disingenuous to myself to say anything other than it's kind of always on my mind. Um, it's something that I love to do. It's something that I'm passionate to do. And um, more than the job itself, I love the people in the job. Man, just they are like an extension of my family. My my company calls me dad. Um, you know for a variety of reasons. <laughs> But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you got um, some stepbrothers over there too. you know, when, when you take the things that are most important in your life and you make them all family and you treat them all with the same respect and regard and they, they echo that back on you, uh, it really does make things run a lot smoother. Perfect. And you both mentioned uh, your wives. Up here, we might refer to them as the Deputy Chief of Domestic Affairs. Perfect. And, uh, <laughs> Perfect. That's awesome. And man. when the Deputy Chief speaks, you move. There's nothing better in this world than guys who think they're so tough. And the Deputy Chief of Domestic Affairs picks up the phone right, and gives them the order, pick up the laundry, pick up the kids, and you watch these tough guys melt. It's hysterical. Yeah, oh, 100%. I'm sure it's like the, the same story everywhere, right? Guys love to, to break each other's chops about, you know, when they watch, you know, the, uh, the as you say, the deputy chief um, bark some orders and they comply and every guy acts super tough <laughs> right up until their own deputy chief calls them and they're like, and, that's right. yep. Uh, so that's 100%. And I, I mean, it really is. It's a growing process. I think, you know, I'm blessed to have a, a partner like Laura who's super supportive I definitely, I mean, I double book myself. I think that happened in our first round of Luff here in um, in Cherry Hill, where I think we scheduled Jim Russell one night, and I'm. Meanwhile, I have to be at a mayor's, you know, meeting on EMS <laughs> staffing crisis, and I'm like, Tim, you got the helm. He's like, I got the helm. I got it. No worries. And uh, that that really is it. I go back to like that what I said earlier, building that team. Um, you know, in 2020, I thought I was like because everybody had kind of like drawn back with the pandemic. Everybody was kind of like taking the year off. Meanwhile, like in the public safety world, we're working our butts off, you know? So for me, and it was just natural, right? Like everybody's like, how are you making out as man? I said, you know, sewers and roads. I mean, that's a, that's a whole nother question, but you want to talk about public safety. I got this, this is our wheelhouse. So, yeah. you know, I was just chugging along in this like very like deliberate leadership role. And um, ultimately I think this is a team role, right? So, and like I said earlier in, in this podcast, um, I could not do it with the the team, you know, that w I've compiled in both, you know, the mayor's role, the and the, the Cherry Hill Fire Department, and at home. My wife is again the uh, an incredible rock and foundation for our family, and my girls, Lily and Grace, are incredibly understanding. I mean, there are times where I think the stress of these 
managing all of this can get the best of me. And they are incredibly patient and forgiving. So again, I mean, I, I, we have an incredible team. Tim, Tim and I work parallel, same platoon. Uh, he's at the rescue on AA and I'm on the, uh, the squad. And so we work quite a bit together and we have another a team of officers and fire, senior firemen um, that support us. So at work. So again, it's just building great teams. Yep. Well said. We're going to jump ahead now and, and we're going to segue to another question, gents. What brought you guys to the Cherry Hill Fire Department? Uh, so I think, again, in my earlier story, there was, uh, I didn't know of a lot of other departments hiring around. I mean, I did take, I think, the, the Boston City test and the, the New York City test. Um, and I took that Cherry Hill test with the hopes that, hey, you know, like at some point they'll call me or at least it'll be a good first round and I can always go back and take it again. Um, but the fact that my brother had gotten hired there in um, early 2000, um, I was kind of exposed to it. I used to do like ride-alongs. I'd go up and ride along with him. And his company officer at the time is actually our battalion chief right now. He ended up being my first company officer, Tim McGeady. He was, a, he was my captain when I got hired. And that, you know, just surrounding myself with those individuals, seeing what they were doing and hearing what they were doing, I was like, this is for me. This is where I want to be. And then there was that huge, that huge point in my time. I didn't think I was going to get the call going into my junior year of college, uh, running track. You know, I had a whole nother life going on and I'm like, okay, let me pivot. Let me take this, let me take this job and see where it takes me. And uh, we'll go from there. So that's, it's really, I mean, it was the only thing I think I wanted. I knew I wanted to do it. I don't know if I necessarily knew I wanted to do it right then and there, but that's how the cards fell. And, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, it's been a great ride. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, uh, like I said, sort of happenstance as far as becoming aware of the department. Um, but I was hell bent on becoming a fireman as a living. So it was an easy test to take. Like I said, it was right across the river. And the thing that strikes me is, you know, the, the waiting was incredible. I think they, they must've ran our list to the last day, uh, before they hired us. But in that time, you know, the, we're talking about 2009 and it, it, there wasn't a ton of information out about the Cherry Hill Fire Department. I mean, they had their their department web page, and I think the union had a page at the time, but very difficult. You know, kind of closed ranks to find out um, as an outsider what what this department was all about. But I did everything I could to sort of like clamor around and gain information. And then you know, I knew one person that had ties to the Cherry Hill Fire Department, and they towed the line. They they sort of like closed the ranks and were like, "Hey, this is what I can tell you about the department." and you know, it's a great place to work, and that's that's sort of it. The rest is for you to figure out. And um, interestingly enough, I get the phone call, and the next day I get a letter from another major metropolitan fire department that was close by and couldn't be more different. You know, this was an urban fire department that had sent me a letter the day after, and there was just something about Cherry Hill where, I, you know, I think it was – I think it was the size. I think it was the idea that you could be a stakeholder there. Um, and it wasn't so big that maybe you made a name for yourself. Maybe you didn't. Uh, not that my target was to make a name for myself, but my target was to be impactful to an organization, not just, you know, another number in the ranks. And Cherry Hills certainly uh, provided me with that opportunity and then some. Terrific. And who are the guys that you looked up to when you first got on and why? Tim, you want to go first? Um, I'll say, you know, I think my entire fire service career, going back to starting as a volunteer, I've looked at everybody. Uh, I don't want to name one name because there's probably so many people. Um, I like to think there's a quote by offered Chuck Palahniuk who says, uh, nothing of me is original. I'm, I am the sole sum of every everyone I've ever known. Uh, I think some, something in that regard. But with that said, you take the good from everybody that you meet. And I think everyone has something to offer, uh, you know, and, and you also learn 
what to leave behind. Um, sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes it takes a little bit of a learning curve, but we certainly had a core group of, of uh, senior officers when Zach and I were hired that were legacies in the department. They were, they were our tie back to the department's roots pre-consolidation. And there was a lot to be gleaned there. There was a lot of information about the development of town and, and how things came about. And then on top of that, Battalion Chief Brett DeLuca, uh, Battalion Chief Tim McGeady, you know, these guys were, were us, you know, when we got hired, they were new lieutenants, they were new station captains. Um, and they were setting, you know, without us knowing it now, except in retrospect, they were setting the tone and the pace for where the department was going. Um, and I think they were sort of indoctrinated under the same culture that we were. You know, it was, it was very easy to find the right lead to follow if you wanted to be a stakeholder and an influencer within the department and, and make great organizational progress and change. Yeah, no, I think uh, to, to piggyback on Tim, it's, you know, I could, I could name, I will name names. <laughs> now, um, the, uh, I think, you know, my, my brother was a huge influence on me. You know, he's, he's a guy just incredibly respected within the department. I remember when I got on, like, you know, this, as soon as you hit the ground running, you're like, once you kind of get through your probe year, you're just like, I want to just get on the right, every step I take, I want it to be perfect, right? I want to set myself up to just be like them, like those mentors. And I think that was, uh, uh, retrospective, I look back and I say, wow, like, I'm glad I didn't, you know, one of the best things that ever happened to me was I didn't get promoted on my first promotional exam or my second, you know, like that gave me more time as a fireman. Um, and I look at how much I learned in that process. And a lot of that is accredited to, I mean, so many firemen over the years, guys that probably other firemen maybe had written off, but like just my interaction in a company for two years with them. And you see, like, uh, there was a guy who was a fireman who retired out of, uh, an engine company I worked in. And he was just like, we would have these, he would smoke a cigarette uh, until the wee hours of the morning. And I would like, we would just, just talk. And I still go back to those conversations in my head so often. Tim McGee was my first captain. My brother hooked me up when I got on the job. He said, Hey, uh, he told chief Giorgio, cause he was just getting promoted to Lieutenant. And uh, Jay said to the chief Georgios, Hey, like, you know, set Zach up. Uh, don't do what you did to me. And uh, <laughs> he said, set him up with a good officer. And I got hit Jason's old officer, uh, Tim McGee. He was being promoted to captain. And so Tim was my first officer. And I mean, I, to this day, go back to the, you know, I always ask myself, what would Tim do? And uh, we are very lucky. We, we call him the Howie Rosen, you know, of, uh, of the Cheryl Fire Department, because he has assembled an incredible A platoon that we work on. And I mean, this is a guy who, he just continues to grow and improve and, and admit his mistakes and humbles. And, you know, him, Brett DeLuca, a countless senior fireman, I mean, some of the guys that we had in this class, my senior fireman, Pat Patterson, you know, uh, Dennis, everybody remembers Dennis from leadership, this first round of Leadership Under Fire. He was the guy that didn't want to read the books. Um, but <laughs> wow, he had a lot to offer. And these are guys that I look up. I mean, you just look up to them. And, I, and even today, like I'll tell you, like Tim, uh, I'm in awe when I watch Tim teach. Um, I'm lucky to be on the same platoon with him. And these are guys now. It's funny how my mentors, you know, from 2006 to now 2022 have changed. But uh, I'll say that the journey has been, been incredible. Terrific. Terrific. What were the challenges you faced upon promotion? I'll let Zach go first. He, <laughs> he's got tenure, so. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, the, the, the first challenge was leaving the company I was in. I, I was on the, at Squad 13, on the Ableton, and to get promoted was bittersweet because I, I was working in an incredible company of men, and I get 
uh, shipped out to an engine company. It was only it was a short lived at the engine company, but that was definitely a challenge. You know, like to shift from a squad company where like we the the culture in that house is just on another level, out to this engine company. But there was a learning curve there. But I, I you know I just went back to like the core values and just said, hey, like let me just stay focused and I set expectations and I was like, we're gonna crush this. Like we you know like I crushed it at the squad. We're gonna we're gonna come in here and we're, I'm gonna be we're gonna be the best engine in the CHFD and. Um, it's hard to say that too when I know the squad companies coming, you know, coming across town in the same local. But uh, I, I told you guys, I mean, we're, we're going to be the best engine company. We're going to focus on that. So that was definitely a challenge, like just, you know, taking a step back and focusing on this new role I was assuming and kind of putting aside um, where I was coming from. And I had a crew that was very, you know, they were senior. They were they weren't new guys. Um, I had a senior man who had I had worked with way back at, at uh, Engine Fifty Two when Tim was with me. He was a senior man in that house, and this guy was, you know, he was he was a bear, and uh, he was awesome. And you know, he was my senior man in this company. And then I had two other guys that, you know, had a ton to offer, had some time in. I, I was senior to them in in, in grade, but definitely um, had a ton to offer. And so that was the challenge. Like, you know, how do you not? How do you go into this company of these guys that know what they're doing? And yet train every day and, and that. And that was definitely, uh, you know, it's, it takes interpersonal skills and, and uh, working with people to kind of navigate that. Definitely one of the biggest challenges. And then I went back. I was very lucky. Uh, that fall, I went right back to the squad company. I positioned open. The captain, you know, had me back. And I actually got, I couldn't work under my brother Jason. So I actually, my old boss shifted platoons so I could take uh, the company that I got promoted out of, which was incredible. And I am lucky that I think it works because, the guys I am I'm working with, they're they're studs. Yeah, I think for me, one of the biggest challenges was, uh, you know, I'd spent the majority of my career in special operations at the rescue. Uh, I did a, a probationary year on an engine, about a year and a half on a outlying truck, and uh, I got sent to rescue, and I I never looked back, and I was. I refer to myself as institutionalized. Um, you know, I, I had uh, I had a great officer, but he was my officer for uh, almost ten years, um, which creates a great working relationship. But when changes around the corner, uh, sometimes it can be a little jarring. And uh, upon promotion, you know, I had to leave rescue, which was um, a little bit of pull on a heartstring as it was, and then um, you know meet a whole new group of people, assume a new role all at the same time. Um, and what I will say is it was probably the best thing for me. It was, it was one of the greatest challenges because uh, I immediately started to learn from all ranks, from you know other captains, other officers that I hadn't necessarily been exposed to because of my time at rescue. And then also from other firemen, you know, like there was, uh, there was a core group of about 15 firemen that I was exposed to over that 10 years. And then all of a sudden I'm out in the companies and these are new people uh, and they're teaching me really valuable lessons. And it took a little bit of time, but I felt like, uh, you know, I only spent a little less than a year uh, outside before I was lucky enough again, like Zach, to get get transferred, not only back to rescue, but again, back to the company that I came from. And that came with a whole new group of challenges because, again, uh, coming out of there and being the senior technician and being the guy that always got the harness first, always got into the water first, always, you know, was on the tool first to um, now I'm totally hands off. I'm facilitating this for this for this group of guys that I'm so used to working with and I have to retrain myself and reorient to work with them in a totally different light. Um, and to their credit, the transition was seamless. They're absolute gentlemen and they are just some of the best operators there are uh, in the fire department. So 
the challenge there, like I said, was just making the transition from being hands-on to stepping back and, you know, being on that entry-level strategic position where I'm not necessarily hands-on with things uh, and handing that over. So a difficult struggle. Yeah, and just to, to, to add one other thing, and I think Tim will agree with this, is the other challenge is that, like, it's it's great when you're the farm, when you're just a fireman, right? Because you can just come to work and you can, whatever the day is going to unfold, you're focused at being very proficient at your job. Based on our size of our department, right, there's a lot of things asked of company officers. Um, and so uh, I will admit I am a horrible time manager. And, you know, I used to, I would, you know, try to focus on getting in the gym every day. And I would find myself stuck at my desk uh, because I would not be at my desk all day, but I would go in there later, um, right before dinner or you know, after after dinner, and I'm just stuck there, like just, just trying to play catch up on reports and grant writing and administrative stuff or and so forth. And so that is the challenge. I mean, like, because of the size of the department, definitely poses a challenge for us. And I, I keep, I have to constantly, like, look back and be like, all right, do not, do not forget what your role is and the, the core values, right? And those, those core skills that you need to maintain. And that is, first and foremost, you're, you're a, we're a working boss. We're a department where, you know, our bosses are working on the fire ground. Totally agree. Excellent. Thank, th- th- thank you for that, guys. Switching gears again, you've both explained the lead up of how you got to Cherry Hill. But uh, one thing I was struck by uh, was your relationship with the Philadelphia Fire Department. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Jim. So the history there starts at the very beginning of the Cherry Hill Fire District. So prior to 1994, January 1st, 1994, we were six separate districts. Um, in the 80s, they had you know begun to hire career firefighters because the call volume was increasing, the demand, and just Cherry Hill was growing from like a you know in the 50s and 60s they went from a farming community you know and some small kind of pockets of suburbs to just fully developed out. So they're at this transition point and the Earlton Fire Company, which was uh, one of the the six districts. I think it was more than six. uh, Maybe nine? Nine uh, I guess, yeah, all the stations together. There were some substations. Earlton being one of the strongest personalities, you know, they go out and they hire uh, Chief Roger Olshafer, who was, had just retired a couple, uh, a year or two prior from the Philadelphia Fire Department as the fire commissioner. And he had a storied career. I mean, incredible. He, He was he was in the Philadelphia Fire Department, a very transitional and influential you know, period of time. So he comes in as this, um, this career chief for the Earlton Fire Department. And at the same time, we transition into um, one fire district, which you, you, have, you have to bring back some of the old heads to tell you the stories of like what that was like. Um, but, you know, Roger just, he sets this course, right? He's this great leader, sees this vision, sees where he needs to take the Cherry Hill Fire Department, charters that course, and just off we go. And he brings in, at some point before he retires, he brought in um, a deputy chief of his who had just retired, uh, Jerry Grover. And Jerry took the reins after Roger as the chief of the department, um, carrying us forward. And I think through their during their time, many of the guys that were hired in those 90s just built that like brotherhood, right? So they they were like, you guys are from Philly. They introduced them to other Philly firemen. And I remember in my academy, you know, Philadelphia Fire Department, there would be a chief that would come over and speak. Um, I think in Tim's academy, there was the same thing. You know, they, they just kind of integrated a little bit. And then at some transitional period, maybe in 2012, you know, 2013, at some point, kind of we lose focus on building that relationship and maintaining that relationship. And it just resurged with the the pursuit of a grant that actually got us a leadership under fire. But I pursued it 
um, okay. for the fire dynamics program. And when I had made some calls to UL and uh, the leadership there, they had said, you know, we, we don't have the time. We're, we're trying to get this like nationwide. Why don't you reach out to Philadelphia Fire Department? We just did the program for them. And that introduced us to the field training unit over there. And from there, they helped us kind of, they gave us some ideas on how to write the grant. They allowed us to attend classes. And of course, once we start attending classes, we there's a lot of similar faces. You know, guys, I, I was in the class with uh, with another lieutenant and um, he, we're sitting there and this guy comes in. He's like, hey, do you know Tim Moore? And we're like, uh, yeah, never heard of him, you know. But, um, you know, so and Tim coming from Delco over in PA, you know, there's a lot of guys that were up and coming over there in the Philadelphia Fire Department that, you know, we just we knew each other or knew of each other. And it was great. We hit it off right away. We write the grant, we get this grant, and then we immediately strike up this, uh, we have a meeting, and I'll, I'll let Tim talk a little bit about that meeting we had in the uh, the summer, I guess, of 20, it was like a year ago or so, I guess, 21. Yeah, um, we met with their field training unit, and they have kind of, they have nice digs, they work out of the second floor of a, of a firehouse, they're somewhat removed from, you know, the, the administrative uh, environment at their fire academy, but as Zach said, I walk in and um, this is sort of my first face to face with the field training unit. And, you know, I, <laughs> there's all these guys that I grew up with uh, sitting there that I didn't even know were going to be in the meeting. So it was, it was a nice surprise. But, you know, we sort of approached them with, hey, we have this grant. We know that you're engaged already in the fire dynamics stuff. And that's when we sort of lay out leadership under fire, the optimizing human performance program for them. There were some other items that were included in the grant that we wanted to um, include to them. And I think going into it, I mean, Zach can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, when you're the small fish uh, across the river where, you know, um, six stations, you know, roughly 100 members compared to the Philadelphia Fire Department who has membership in the thousands and, um, you know, the entire city, you, you feel like you need to bring a gift when you come to their table. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, and the, the really interesting thing, this is a credit to, to these guys and their attitude and their foresight was... Um, as much as the Philadelphia Fire Department could offer the Cherry Hill Fire Department, um, they were highly anticipating, and I think they've been happy so far with what we could offer them, right? And yeah. we have we have a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more um, ability to, to maneuver than they do based on size. And likewise, they are rich in resources, um, and they also have an incredible membership base of their own that they can draw from. So... It really has become this odd couple um, relationship uh, between the fire department and the field training unit in Philly where, um, you know, we said, hey, we're going to do a building construction program. Um, oh, yeah, we're, we're building our own right now. We have guys in the trades across from here. They're putting out, you know, they do things by modules. I think we I've heard on the podcast here that I think it was Diamond Plate, if that's right. Yes. Right. Uh, training platform. So they have something similar. They're putting out videos and they're offering them to us. And in, in turn, we're, we're offering them the resources that we've been lucky enough to, to sort of glean, which is, you know, obviously the Leadership Under Fire program, along with everything else that we've got in the grant. And they're taking it and running with it. And we're doing the same. So yeah. uh, it's really a nice, nice partnership. And like I said, the disparity in size, you know, like I said, you, you go to that table and they're, they're big, you know, I, I grew up knowing what the Philadelphia Fire Department was. Like I said, I lived right across the river. I didn't. I never heard of Cherry Hill Township um, <laughs> until until I started working there. And um, you know, the, the mutual respect. These guys are just absolute gentlemen and masters of their craft, and they're just so engaged in you know the the ground level fight to make the fire department just the absolute best it can be in the preservation of the job. So uh, it's, it's just a really encouraging, great relationship. Fantastic. That's great to hear. Switching gears again. My understanding is that 
you guys initially were exposed to LUF in 2012 when you both attended and Leadership Under Fire inaugural conference in Philadelphia. The question would be, how has Leadership Under Fire assisted you in your development, both professionally and personally? Tim's pointing his finger at me like, you start. (laughs) Yeah, so that first conference, um, I can't even remember at this point. Correction, I do. I, I remember. So uh, my older brother, Jason, who's a battalion chief now in the Cherry Hill Fire Department, he was teaching with a group out at FDIC, um, and I guess on the lecture day, he got a chance to see Jason speak, and he came back, and he's like, this guy crushed it. And so he's chatting up this this Jason Bresler, you know, U.S. Marine and New York City firefighter. And so, lo and behold, I, I want to say it's a year, year or so later, we see this inaugural conference in Philadelphia. We're like, all right, this is great. So we signed, we basically self-enroll, pay our own way, and we're there. And it just, right off the bat, um, I find myself nodding my head. And, you know, as a, I remember there was, uh, Dr. Askin was there, Colonel Shuska, you know, and and Dr. Askin, I think he was talking about visualization exercises and, like, do you visualize yourself doing it? And I'm thinking back to my days in, like, in the paddock at a a track meet, you know, in a relay, and I'm going, I, like, used to sit there, and I didn't want anyone to bother me, and I'm I'm visualizing myself running an 800-meter um, around the track, like every step of it. And I'm going, Oh my gosh, like that, that applies to this job. And, and I can do that here. I never thought of that. And those things just started to click and I'm seeing, I'm just like clicking all these boxes and saying, you're checking all these boxes and going, man, there's something here. Like, I think this is an area that we've completely untapped. And up to that point, I'm still young in my career. I'm only six years into my career and I'm, you know, focused on like learning the technical skills, like, and just honing those. So I'm focused on forceful entry, you know, hose stretching, um, and just being a master of that craft. And I'm like, w- there's nothing out here. Like there's nothing out there in the market that is, is, uh, teaching this. And so I just, I was instantly hooked. Yeah. I think, um, you know, as Zach said, so we, we sort of like go into this just on, you know, the recommendation of our peers kind of like, Hey, if you hear this guy speak and, um, you know, not to repeat what Zach had said, but again, you just find yourself thinking in your head while Jason speaks, man, like, I've been trying to say that, or I've been thinking that, and I didn't know that, you know, that's, that was the way it needed to be articulated. Um, and he had this very, I remember in the beginning, he had this like really visceral presentation. Um, he was carrying this, uh, make yourself hard to kill mantra. It was like, a you know, about honing your own skills, which would inherently make you safer to operate in riskier environments. And I was super interested when, when this came around, uh, you know, Zach had said, Hey, we're, we're getting this grant and we're going to be able to articulate the leadership under fire program. And he had done the online program, um, for optimizing human performance. And I, I had been listening to the podcast, but my last in-person exposure was, uh, the last Philadelphia conference, I guess, which was the second one. And I was like, yeah, I I would love to hear this guy speak again. And I kind of went into it thinking it was going to be along the same lines. And we sat through the optimizing human performance program in the spring. And I approached Jason afterwards and I said, you know, I've heard you speak on multiple occasions. You know, I feel like I'm sort of a lifelong uh, follower and fan of of leadership under fire and everything that you're trying to accomplish. But optimizing human performance was this delivery that you could see how the, the organization and the direction that it took had just matured and evolved and maybe by happenstance, um, I felt like what I heard from him in 2012 was exactly what I needed to sort of light a fire and view how I was performing as a career fireman differently. And similarly now in 2022, 20, uh, 
here he shows up and I have a totally new appreciation for how I'm performing and uh, very similar but very different presentation on where I was professionally and how I'd matured and where I wanted to go. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, like the growth of Leadership Under Fire in the last 10 years that parallels the growth of, of Tim and myself. I mean, we've I look at perspective in 2012 and the way I viewed the program to perspective today, and I can see how we've both grown and for the better. And, I, you know, I'm excited. I think the direction that it's headed, both Leadership Under Fire and us as an organization, Cheryl Fire Department, is, you know, this is, this is awesome. This is amazing. Terrific. And piggybacking off of that, Despite being company officers, you're both actively shaping the strategic trajectory of the Cherry Hill Fire Department. What's your vision for the Cherry Hill Fire Department five to 10 years from now? Yeah, so I think the first thing that's important to note is um, one of the things that's so appealing about the Cherry Hill Fire Department, in my perspective, and Zach and I have shared conversations about this, is it has always been an organization where every single member is a stakeholder. If you have a desire to make the organization better, they are always willing to help you cultivate that and help you sort of stoke that fire. Uh, and in that right, um, I think much to our conversation just previous about evolving, that's where you know Zach and I have, have found ourselves. Yeah, we are just company officers in our day-to-day, um, but we have an investment in the organization, as do the lion's share of our members and our administration. And I think it's just important to note that as stakeholders in that, any member of the Cherry Hill Fire Department who wants to see the organization proceed forward and evolve has the tools to do so right there, which is the, the starting block for all of this. None of this is possible without that. Yeah, I hear this common theme, you know, in talking with um, members of other departments. I've been to a number of conferences and you always hear like, you know, I've, oh, I've got this great information I just, you know, gathered at this conference and you come back and, you know, what do you do with it, right? Is Do you just hold it to yourself or do you use it to, to be a catalyst for change? And, you know, and I've heard people even say, oh, yeah, you know, ideas go upstairs to die. And I got to say, not in the Cheryl Fire Department. We have been blessed over, you know, from the beginning with Roger Olshafer all the way through Bob Giorgio and, and now Chris Callen. These guys, you know, have have done exactly what Tim said, and that is foster this idea of you you can be you know the change I, I say to tim all the time when we're we're reflecting at some point you know, usually over coffee or a beverage another beverage um i'll say you know hey man when i teach these guys like these recruits i'm looking at them i'm going by sheer statistics right like there's probably two future chiefs in the department maybe more that we're like influencing right now and i'm like that really like humbles me a little bit and kind of sits me back and say like okay well like what will they remember about me? What will they remember about Tim? What will they remember about everybody that interacts with them? And how do we influence that? It's just like raising my kids. Truth be told, our second floor has done a great job at allowing us to do this. They fully supportive of you know the leadership under fire program that has come in, um, and some of our other wild ideas. We just we ran a public speaking class. I had an old pen uh, professor of mine uh, come back and <laughs> teach this public speaking class, and the one of the assistant chiefs in there was like walked away like, wow, this is awesome, and. Uh, truth be told, you had Philly Fireman that got word of this as well. And they're like, hey, how do we get in that class? Um, so, yeah, they've been incredibly supportive of us and really fostering and helping us grow um, as individuals. And we are also really lucky. We have probably in the history of the CHFT, we've had a lot of great battalion chiefs, but we have three battalion chiefs right now who in the field command office, these guys are so in sync and on point. My brother, Jason uh, Hauk, 
uh, Tim and I, our battalion chief, Tim McGeady, and, and uh, Brett DeLuca, who you've met, um, these guys are in sync, working together, and they're just fostering the future leadership of the de- department. And these guys really will be at the helm in the next five or 10 years, I'm sure. And just continuing this growth, this, uh, and there'll be challenges. We know that. Like, there's gonna, we've had challenges to date, you know, and, and we're not perfect. Um, but uh, man, I mean, it's impressive to watch. So Tim and I are just, we're just cogs in the wheel. Yeah. And I think Zach, you know, we, we had a conversation on the train up where we talked about training wise in the Cherry Hill Fire Department. Um, there's always been a lot of strength in, in that division, in that category. It's something that is, is near and dear to the department and always will be. This is a pivotal time for, for the fire department in the sense that, you know, we're, we're fairly young. We're just past 25 years as a, you know, post-consolidation. And we're going to have this seismic change where we're going to lose a lot of seniority uh, to retirement and, and good luck and, and great for them. Um, but we're going to inherit uh, a lot of blank slates. And the leadership under fire program, in my opinion, uh, is a great foundational aggregate for how we all become uniform in, you know, the secession of the department as an organization. You know, this is a common way of thinking that elevates us beyond being proficient at two-in-one operations. Or, you know, it's, it's always about the firefight at the end of the day. But if our operators are better equipped personally to meet that challenge, uh, then the department will follow suit and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I, I firmly believe that moving forward, the smaller fire departments are really going to change the American fire service. You guys are the jet ski, right? You can stop and pivot on a dime. Urban fire departments are cargo ships. You know, we're the <laughs> mega cargo ship. It takes five days to stop, a week to turn around. And at any one time, there are a thousand critical issues to deal with. You guys, have these small fire departments, um, we see it all around the country. You have the ability to really bring the changes. And, when I think about the possibility of someday that you guys partnering up with Penn Neuroscience, my brain is about to explode. <laughs> but that's the thing. Right? You can you can do this because you have that flexibility. Uh, I, I, and you see in a world of, of ever-increasing change, the speed of change, that large legacy agencies and departments are going to have a harder and harder time keeping up. And I think that the future rests with those who are small and quick and agile. And I think you guys are a pretty darn good example of that. We, I appreciate that compliment. Um, yeah, no, tr- truth be told, like Tim, Tim hit on a point. I mean, in the class of 98 is, is coming up on retirement and the face of our department is going to change. It's been changing. We've seen more and more retirements over the last few years. But, I mean, we're, we're a ton of experiences about to walk out the door and the 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 culture of the organization, I think, will still stay true to where its roots are. But I think to quote um, one of my uh, an Irish storyteller, one of my favorite podcasts I ever listened to was Claire Murphy. You know, he says like that's like burning down a library, right? Like when when you have a an attrition, you know, of your department, a retirement of of twenty plus members in a department of a hundred, um, that's huge. I mean, that's, there's a, it's it's a change in and. Um, thankfully, I think the foundation has been laid and through, you know, decentralized decision making and that the guys humoring their imaginations and coming up with like and saying, hey, like, what do you think of this? And bouncing it off each other and working as a team. Uh, you know, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's a great thing to be a part of. So, yeah. And losing experience is something we just continually dealt with. I mean, in New York, in the firefighter rank, 
approximately 5 to 7% of the firefighter rank is pre-9-11. Mm-hmm. What we've never done on our job is have those great ones come back regularly to talk. Leadership under fire has done this. But it's one thing if all that talent's going to retire, time calls for all of us. But you have to bring them back. They have so much to give. Just when they retire, it doesn't mean they're gone. They should always be a part of you. And that's something we've had a hard time uh, grappling with. But I, I would hope as a lesson for you guys, they have so much to offer. It's a crime if we let them go. It's like burning the library, as you said. Yeah, I think I'm going to move along. What aspects or blocks or themes of the Leadership Under Fire program did you and your leaders from Cherry Hill enjoy most? We had an interesting cross-section of uh, people in the in the first iteration. So we're going to run three optimizing human performance programs off the bat, off the grant. Um, and that's going to encompass our entire department, plus uh, our neighbors in Philadelphia and some other you know, guest students. But one of the things that we wanted to do was we wanted to create um, – we wanted to create a room full of leaders, but not necessarily leaders in a traditional sense, right? So we wanted to create some chemistry. We wanted to create some friction. Uh, we wanted to open some eyes to a new way of thinking. Um, and truth be told, uh, I think the sort of the proof in, in that methodology was seen when we did our, our feedback loop. We passed out these surveys, and it was across the board. So five days of very different presenters, everything from, you know, hands-on application of uh, you know, the tactical techniques that we were le- um, learning to, uh, you know, breathing exercises, you name it, it was there. Everyone gravitated differently. Um, now, there were common themes there, you know, anything that spoke directly from a fireman to a fireman was uh, generally a home run, right? Everybody wanted more of that. Jim, you know, don't go getting a big head on us, but everybody <laughs> wanted a full day of Jim McNamara. Um, as, you know, oh, dear God. <laughs> uh, but you know, and that was, you know, there were some results that we could expect where, you know, hey, anything that, that speaks to firematically. But I think what really, to me, stood out was in the beginning of class, um, I think it's Jason, it may also be, you may have also made this uh, caveat before you presented was the majority of what we're going to say here today is anecdotal, right? And firemen love a good story um, from, you know, what's going on at home to the job we had last night. Uh, it's all game on the kitchen table kind of thing. And I think anybody who had their story to tell, um, and it was pretty much everybody, um, the story is what captivated the audience. And then everybody just picked and chose what they thought was was most applicable to them. And some people aligned with their rank structure, some people aligned with their personal experiences. But by and large, overwhelming reception. I don't think there was anybody that was discounted in that. Zach can speak a little bit more to it. No, yeah. And actually, I'm, I'm thinking right now of like a to-do list. I actually, I don't think I ever forwarded the survey results along to Philly Fire Department, um, to the field training unit to, to kind of read through. But I, Jim, you know, we sent them to you and Jason and overwhelming, you know, there was an early question like, hey, did you, were you, um, for both this and the, and the public speaking class we were running, you know, we said, hey, did you, were you, um, kind of like uh, apprehensive about attending this class and and overwhelmingly yes like everyone was like I don't I don't necessarily know how this is going to fit and kind of some like just the unknown and the questions and that was the overwhelming theme and then by the end you know the, of both surveys it, it said hey like would you attend you know a one-off session single day session yes you know do you want to take be a part of work groups that'll take this and implement this into the department or so forth? Yes. And then it was like, do you think we should offer more of these like soft skills 
uh, classes, and it was like overwhelmingly yes. And I think that was huge. I mean, that was that was a powerful message to us. Um, but truth be told, as Tim would say, like our department spent you know the '80s and '90s and early 2000s just honing our craft at like stretching line, operating with two and one. Um, I mean, it was methodical and it was driven into us in the academy. And I think this is the next this is the next phase of the Cheryl Fire Department to you know to take us to another level. And there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, there's that this transition period, and, and though we are losing a ton of experience, we're also there. There creates some malleability to the to the organization, which is awesome. But I, I was really I think what most took me back was the senior men, these guys that are that were fully committed to the program, and yet they can retire in less than a year, and they were driving full full ahead, you know, full steam ahead, and went back to their companies and were talking this up, which was huge. And that was uh, to Tim's credit, you know, we were very. Him and I are in this like in this dark room, sitting there coming up with like how we're gonna do the roster for the first class, and we're like uh, juxtaposing personalities against each other, and uh, it paid off. Um, but we have an incredible support team, the company officers, and I think the environment is rich for and is ripe for for this right now, and that's and it's great. And then the grant was the the kickoff. That's a real testament to what you guys are doing because this was an AFG grant, assistance to firefighters grant, you know, and. and you know, normally those grants are awarded for like hard skills, like build. We got one for building construction, um, but now it's for for this mental performance. And I, I mean, that's huge to see that the American Fire Service is biting. Uh, Ten years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. Yeah, yeah. And the crazy thing is that the great ones from the war years did this. You know, they didn't have the the luxury of partnered with special operations guys and, and Ivy League professors, but they did many of these things we now have the ability to expand. But you talked about a point I like to hone in on. Jim, Jim when, you, I, when you lose... Jim, yeah, can okay, I, I was going to say, I just want to interrupt you real fast. Can we go back? Because what you just said, I think, I remember in your pot, when, when uh, Jason or Patty interviewed you, you talked about this, right? What was your, like, when you went to the MPI program for the first time, you... you oh. Yeah. Talk about that. Can you, I mean, yeah. can you just elaborate on that? Sure. So my battalion commander, Jim Ginty was part of the uh, program initially. And uh, we had worked together for 15 years. So not only do we have a relationship, but we built trust. And he said, well, you know, they're putting out, Charles rolling out this kind of new program. I think, uh, you know, this is right up your out. And he tells me it's called mental performance. And I'm like, what? And I was like, you know, what is this, a yoga program? He goes, no, he goes, you know, check this out. I know this is for you. And because we had that kind of relationship, yeah, I, I sat there and, I didn't grasp it the first week. A lot of it went over my head, but I knew at the core that something very special was happening. And um, I drove home with my signed copy of uh, Grossman's On Combat, and uh, here we are now. <laughs> That's like us. A bunch of guys it, went out and bought Dr. Z's book, I think, at the uh, Dr. Zinzer's book right after yes, the, the class, Zinzer's. which was amazing to see how many guys were like, they wanted to wa- look at your library more than anything, I think, at the end of uh, our class. <laughs> I wish I could truckload the whole thing down. It'd be great. And I'll take that theme for a minute. One of the things that shocked me in New York was the amount of reading our guys and gals do. And I think that's because in this profession, people are hyper competitive. You know, they may smile and they're nice, but deep down, they're infuriated that somebody's like getting ahead of them and can do better. That's that's what part of what, what makes this profession so great. But we have people crushing material that's just unbelievable, and it's a credit, you know, because you're going to make them better. I wish 
you know, as someone who's on their way out, I, I wish the promotional process for us would change. You know, spending four years reading the same, you know, materials. Man, if they could spend a third of their time, like, reading outside stuff and development, you get a much better product. But I'm not in that position to do it. But, yes, that's – I very mistakenly came to this, and now it's uh, – I'm sitting here in the woods doing a podcast on vacation. <laughs> um, it's been the single best thing I've ever done in my career, I say without hesitation. And um, I don't think it's over. You know, I think there's so much more to do, and uh, that's what really drives you. We're just really touching the, the, the tip of an iceberg. There is so much to do and um, so much more to learn, and, and that's, that's fantastic for all of us. If I could circle one moment back to um, you talked about you're losing a ton of senior people. One thing, uh, Jake Dutton, who's a firefighter in Rescue One here in New York, he came up with a brilliant idea. Why don't we build a class on how you build force multipliers and the next round, next future leaders of the, of the job, and do it from three vantage points, young firefighter, middle of the road guy, and a senior guy. So we're, we don't, we're not sure when it's going to come out, but that's something I think is a gap that exists in the, in the American Fire Service. You know, how do you how do you build the next generation of force multipliers and prepare them to take the lessons of those who, who are leaving? So there's, you don't have that significant gap when they leave. And hopefully we can uh, we can chip away at that. Yeah, no, I think to that. It's funny when we got this grant and Tim has said it earlier, you know, like we're, we're a small department. So there's a lot of guys serve on multiple committees. And so I wasn't on the training committee at the time. I, you know, I work on the grant writing. And we get this $360,000 training grant, and I'm like, okay, now we have to execute this. So we host the first grant meeting, and I, you know, and I, I kind of sat back and reflected on it. I'm like, okay, we, we got to chop this up and um, divvy it out. And we get to the training meeting. I still remember Tim sitting across down the table from me, and I'm, I kind of like had already penciled the guys' names next to the topics I wanted them to like grab and run with. And Tim's name was right next to where this it was. It was professional development of our instructors, and. It was this like subcategory within it. It was not really like clearly defined as like, all right, building construction is X, you know, uh, leadership under fires, you know, is Y. We're, you know, this was this subcategory. And I said, hey, for us to do this right, we need to invest in our instructors to multiply this $360,000 into like one point some million, right? Yeah. And we can only do that through the quality, right? At the end of the day, it's still $360,000. That's all we get to spend, but we can do it through the quality of the delivery. And so when I said, hey, I've got these like topics here, like I need somebody to focus on like all these, just training our instructors how to train. It was like a, a better version of a train the trainer. And Tim's like, I'll do that. And that was awesome. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. And um, he's the perfect guy for it. He is a master um, designer of a training curriculum and program. And he has run with this. And, and truth be told, you know, we, we brought in the leadership under fire component to it. We've, we've been doing... Um, some just internal informal discussions uh, from the public speaking classes, but no, it's it's huge, and and that has been a shift for me. Uh, if you're asking, like one thing I've actually had to force myself to change on it was um, realizing that I will not always be just by the nature of the size of our department. I'm not probably always going to be in a position to be teaching engine company operations in the recruit academy. For the sake of the organization, I have to put my own selfishness you know aside and say, hey, like I got to prepare the next group of guys to to do what we do, and. You know, that's where that's one of the hardest things I think for any organization, right? Succession planning and um, 
And I think I've been hyper-focused on this, you know, and I guess I take it a little bit too from my mentors who have taught me the same thing. They were the ones that developed me and I think to replace them and and so forth. So. Excellent. And any other thoughts? No, I would just say one of our main objectives with the leadership under fire component was exactly what you said was to capture these senior men before they left. And the overwhelming response after round one was from a lot of guys that like, you would kill to be on a company with them. You would kill to have a cup of coffee with them, you know, after a fire or first thing in the morning. What we were able to do was sort of enlighten them as to like, you know, where they would just say like, well, I just do what I do. You know, like I've been doing this long enough and I just do what I do. Now they know why, or they, they, they're starting to understand why. And that's starting to translate to them to articulate to this younger generation. Like, this is why I do this as a show friend. This is why it works. Or this is why I take this tactical pause. Or this is why, um, I'm successful at being this way because I've, you know, I've trained myself to control my breathing or whatever the case may be. Um, this has been a tool of an entire another dimension for them alone, let alone the rest of the department. Excellent. And well said. That kind of echoes what uh, Met GM Sandy Alderson talks about, that in today's generation, it's not just teaching them to do, but teaching them why. And that's a, that's you hit it right on the head. So, gents, you're the third fire department that has embarked on this endeavor to optimize human performance in a programmatic fashion. The FDY and Milwaukee uh, being the others. What counsel and encouragement might you have for other leaders who are considering such an organizational pursuit? I would start out with stepping back and changing their global view of what what they're actually doing for their their organization. What I mean by that is on the surface, this may appear like a five-day program that you're going to invest in, put your members through, and then they're better for it. And and it couldn't be further from that where um, this is sowing the seeds, hopefully on fertile ground. And, you know, Jason will say uh, all the time through the program, and and he's, he's been a great resource for us and like, hey, you know, where are you going with this? What is this doing for your organization? You've had the opportunity to be spectators through round one. The time now is to start tilling those fields and and growing your crop here and and making this your own. And I think that's something really unique to the optimizing human performance program is that the proof is downrange where, you know, we're going to see the the real dividends from this investment um, as opposed to you know, what, what may be the perception that, you know, oh, they're going to come in for five days and there's going to be this perceptible change in the department. There is, but the real value here is globally over over years and how this is, is sown into the culture and the integrity of the department. So that, that would be my first uh, recommendation would be if, if that if you're looking to strengthen and revitalize the way that your department conducts itself from an operational standpoint and from a human standpoint, and a way to invest in your people, this is the first step in that, is, is understanding people. No, and actually, I'm, I'm going to jump right at that, people. Like, that is that is key. This has been 10 years in the making. Uh, so, number one, pace yourself. But truly, it's the reason we're able to do this is because of the people, um, not Tim and I, but, like, the people that surround us. And I go back to the teams, you know, and there's that, the book, Boyd, by... Um, Corum. Corum, thank you. Um, you know, Jason talked about it at the very first conference and I went out and I bought it and it's an it's a little tough to get going but once you get going you're like it was like wow it resonated with me and he talks about people ideas and technology right and in that order people ideas and technology and I'm like that that's exactly it 
And when, during my time at Fells, I remember referencing that quote. And now even here, I look at it and say, it's the people that matter. You have the right people in the right places. And, you know, I think we're at that point. We, we've had it all along um, for, the, for what was important to the Cherry Hill Fire Department in each moment in time. But right now, I think we have the right people in all of the places. And we have a culture that fosters that, that continued growth and that humoring of your imagination. And so, you know, we're just that, – that's key. Like you have to have that foundation built because you're not going to do this yourself. Um, and it's going to be a long time. I mean, it's going to be a long time coming, I imagine. But get the right people in the right places and just about anything's possible. Um, and, and Tim and I have an incredible support of superior officers, you know, to our peers. And, and just senior firemen who are fully supportive of this initiative. And that's key. So you, ha- you have to build a great team. Terrific. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, gents, let's do a rapid fire question and answer. Something performance related that you've changed your mind about recently. Uh, all right. So for me, uh, it's, it's the human factor and it's, it's uh, making the narrative human. So uh, one of the missteps I had upon getting promoted was that uh, I had to box out a lot of the human factors and, you know, try and maintain this robot-like wow. level of proficiency and control. Um, and what it did was ultimately it ended up boxing me off from uh, my company and being unable to assist them and understand them because, you know, I wasn't allowing myself to function on that level, which didn't allow me to support them on that level. So uh, after going through optimizing human performance, you know, allowing myself to function as a human, understanding the curve, understanding where I want to be and what it feels like better empowers me to get that same product out of my company. Excellent. To kind of piggyback on that exactly with, with dealing with my personnel, you know, I've definitely had a shift in succession planning. Like I, I've, I would say I'm a bit selfish at times when it comes to instructing and my role within the CHFD, but I've realized again to go back to what I'd said earlier. Like I'm not, I'm not always going to be a lieutenant in the squad company. I'm not um, depending on just attrition. Like you know, luck has a say, and I could very rapidly, just by the law of numbers, end up not in a position or in a rank position that where I'm able to or should be the guy there teaching someone, you know, a new recruit how to stretch line. Um, so. I've definitely shifted in the last year to succession planning, and that is uh, developing the, those around me to be better instructors. And then at the same time, kind of fold this in, like, right, for, I go back to like, hey, to make this work, like, if I'm just addressing the symptoms, like, if we're just introducing leadership under fire as like, hey, here's a, here's a class to come in and like take and take what you want, and that's it, then all we're doing is, you know, it's not going to stand the test of time, right? We have to approach this with this, this notion of like, we have to do this slow, methodically, and kind of let the members take it, kind of mold it, and see where they want to take it. And it can't be necessarily be Zach's uh, way every time. Okay. And your favorite podcast, non-LUF? I'll, I'll go first because Tim already told me he's admitted. Uh, he doesn't know of any other podcast besides Leadership Under Fire. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, he doesn't have time for podcasts, I'll exp- he says. I'll explain. I'll He'll explain, explain yeah. Um, I think so. The first one, the first podcast, when I fi- people were talking about them, I kind of remember when this came became a thing. It was um, the first one I really found, and I don't even remember how I found it. it. Was the Art of Manliness, Brett McKay, and I just I started listening. And the people, I think it was the the people that he interviewed, was really just intrigued me because it's kind of similar to the Leadership Under Fire. Like you're pulling people from like areas that you would never have maybe explored before, right? You would have stayed in your niche, and yet I'm listening to podcasts where 
they're interviewing, uh, you know, a Jesuit priest, uh, you know, who's talking about um, philosophy, atheism, and, you know, religion, to um, he interviewed Jason Bresler, I think, and, um, you know, storytellers of, of, all, of all kinds. So that's a big one for me. And I do, uh, I do really like uh, MCTI, Mission Critical Teams Institute. I, there's yeah. specific podcasts. Yeah. yeah it, you guys turned me on to them, I think, through um, one of your sessions in one of the, I forget if it was a spring or fall, which class might have been optimizing human performance. And then um, specifically on there, Claire Murphy. I mean, I'm, I'm really big on this like whole storytelling thing right now. I think there's a powerful tool yeah. that we underutilize. That's my next wild idea that I'm trying to, uh, to introduce. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as Zach alluded to, um, I, w- I wouldn't even say I'm a loyalist to the Leadership Under Fire podcast in the sense that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a midnight snacker when it comes to podcasts. You know, if I see something that strikes my interest, I fire it up. Um, if it's good, I'd go back for more. If it's not, I leave it behind. Uh, but Leadership Under Fire has has the diversity that sort of speaks to that, um, where it's, it's not necessarily all firematic or rescue related. If I had to pin one that I probably listen to second most, it would be, you know, CMC's done a really good job of speaking to the, um, the fire service rope rescue environment and sort of... Um, you know, extending conversations beyond the trade industry. So I think that would, that would be my nominee. Although, you know, admittedly, I'm not a podcast connoisseur. Sure. Your most impactful book, rapid fire. Uh, for me, it's good to great by Jim Collins, hands down. hundred percent. Um, I think there's just, and out of the entire series, it's the one for me that speaks most to how these captains of industry are actually quiet professionals that are just, uh, disrupting their environment and taking their companies to the next level by, you know, really focusing on making critical, hard decisions in the best possible way. To this, I, there's, I have like three in mind. I mean, and I legitimately rapid fires, rapid okay. fire. I carry these books around with me <laughs> all the time. Guys like say, like you're going to throw books at the fire, right? Is that, no, um, it's peep labors, the mission, the men and me. I mean, that, that book captivated me and on its leadership principles. Um, and you'll hear me quote them all the time. Uh, Make It Stick is the other one that I think I would lean on because uh, I think it's by the, an author by the name of Brown and two other gentlemen. And it's about um, the science of successful learning and how a lot of preconceived notions aren't actually the best way to learn. And, you know, so that's that's a whole side uh, story of mine, you know, about how we can take that and kind of influence the way we instruct as firefighters. Terrific. I'll throw one in. Dr. Robert Sapolsky's Behave, first 80 pages only. Boom. Favorite movie or documentary? <laughs> Rapid fire. Oh, man. Uh, documentaries, again. I'm a documentary-aholic. Um, I'll watch anything, even if it looks super benign. I, I have to know why somebody wanted to make two hours of film on this. The one that I will never turn off, and I can't really give you a good reason why, is Enron, the smartest people in the room. It's a terrible story. Uh, but I think it just speaks to people, and it speaks to how they behave, and that interests me all the time. So any document that has to do with people, but that's the one that I will not turn off. Yeah, no, and I, I think for me, it's uh, I don't I don't really find a lot of time at all to uh, to watch movies or TV, so it's it's difficult for me to name this. But I mean, there's if I were to go back, I would say uh, Tim and I were bouncing these around on the train, and I said I think The Big Short is a is one that it just that story of and again it goes back to the interaction between people and you know the environment and like the changing of times. I think it's just it's it's just fascinating to watch, and then I draw these parallels to smaller scale incidents, you know that we've dealt with. Excellent. And your favorite historical leader? Zach. Man, I'm like, 
I, I hate this because I'd be like, I feel like it's going to be cliche, but I would say, um, <laughs> I, I read the book Splendid and Vile, and I loved you know the the story of like you know Churchill, and I think that's it's an incredible story because yep. like you know you you look at a lot of these leaders only from like what you kind of get in little um, little facts and history, but to to dive into that, which was a very candid book about his personal life as well. Um, incredible, incredible leader. And to stay over there in the UK, as weird as this is going to sound, I, I'm a fan of The Crown, uh, one show I do watch. And I think Queen Elizabeth, and that's she's that story, I've come a whole new respect of like the royals to some extent, to some extent. <laughs> Tim shaking, Tim's shaking his head at me like, what are you talking about? A soap opera here? Yeah. You want to talk about going off the backside. Um, so for me, it would be Teddy Roosevelt, again, kind of cliche, but I just feel like, you know, Totally self-made guy, um, faint and feeble as a kid, sort of pushed himself to, you know, what he made himself to be. And, you know, for me, uh, the excerpt, The Man in the Arena from Citizenship in the Republic is just the absolute, I I think it's just the epitome of of being a fireman. Like, to me, it just immediately speaks to what we do on a day-to-day basis and how if you're not completely in this job, you probably don't understand. But if you are, that is just the... You know, to me, it's just the core of what we do. It's it's scrolled on the bottom side of my helmet, and it will be for my entire career. Excellent. Well done. Zach, Tim, this has been a terrific experience. I wish I was down there with you in studio because I could talk to you guys all day. I hope I get a chance to talk to you at length the next time we see each other. Absolutely. I think you guys are doing amazing things, and I'm always big fans of guys who are out there uh, in the front contributing to this profession because at the end of the day we are all the same 